Hello, this is Russell Davis with The Art of Artists, some of whom, by nature, are serious and a little wary, as I'm sure I would be on the other side of the microphone. But if there's one performer whose visit guarantees a controlled hilarity, it's John Barrowman, actor, singer, MC, host, whose natural mode is a broad and irrepressible grin. I first talked to him on Radio 2 ten years ago, but so much has happened to him since then that it might just as well be a different person, except that he hasn't lost that fascinating divide in his personality between his Scottish and American selves. John, you're very welcome. Thank you. Now, we have met and talked before uh, when you were already pretty famous, but not as famous as you are now. And crucially, it was before you fell in with Russell T. Davis, (laughs) the saviour of Dr. Hugh and, and inventor of much else besides. And that becomes a bit of an issue now because I found almost at the end of your first autobiography an exchange where someone, some journalist, I think, asks Russell what the T in his name stands for. Mm -hmm. And he replies, and I'll bowdlerise this a bit for Radio 2, (laughs) there's some other blighter, let's say, in the business called Russell (laughs) Davis, but when he dies, (laughs) I'll drop the T. So I I just want him to know my health is reasonably sound. And you're looking good. (laughs) Thank you. You definitely are. I'm hoping to go bounding on for some time yet. But at the same time, I would like to thank him as a fellow Welshman for uh, being as tolerant as he's usually been about this strange situation. He has got another name, though, hasn't he? Stephen, I think. Do you know? I didn't know that. Uh, Yeah. I did not know that, but I will now call him Stephen. But S. Russell Davis isn't a happy happy formula. No, Doesn't work. Anyway, no such problem with you. You are and always have been John Barrow. That is correct. Yes. Although the identity question doesn't close there because there are two of you, as I found out all those years ago. There's the Yankee Barrowman and the the Glasgow Barrowman. And the two do meet, the twain do meet, occasionally in the middle of a sentence. Yes, they do. Yes. And uh, it depends. Now, for instance, I'm speaking to you because you have a, you speak with a, uh, an English uh, accent. Yes. And uh, it's because when I moved to the States and I was uh, speaking with a Scottish accent, Americans, American kids made fun of me. They bullied me. And if I'd have gone over there when I was 18 or 19, it might have been a different story. I would have maybe fought back. Yeah. But being, uh, you know, what, seven, eight years old, I completely decided to make to beat them at their own game, which maybe was a little smarter. I then spoke with the American accent with Americans. So when I came back over to the UK, being with uh, Brits, um, an English speaker, you know, English uh, uh, people, I would speak with them with an American accent. But when I'm in Glasgow, yes. I speak with a Scottish accent, as I do with my mum and dad, my brother and my sister, and all of my relatives up in Glasgow. And some people say to me, they say, you know, which one is you? They're both me. Yes. They are part of who I am. And I I can, I am fortunate that I, my sister and I wrote in one of my uh, books, and we call it being bi-dialectical. Yeah. And I can, uh, I have, you know, just the knack of being able to speak a different way with different people. And I, there's nothing that I, I don't want to change it. It's who I am. And so when people make fun of it now or critique me about it now, it kind of really upsets me because you're actually making fun of me. And, mm. and and poking something and saying rude things about the person that I am. And I'm big enough now, I won't stand for it. For those who don't know, we should explain briefly why this all happened. Because yes. your father was in heavy engineering and much in demand, obviously. Because Correct. he was taken from the Caterpillar Company, as in Caterpillar Tractors, yep. in Scotland yep. to, to America. Twice, in fact. Two, two different trips. That is correct. And the second one was very long. It was a lot of your education. Most well, of the, the second one, my parents are still there. Yes. The, the, they told us the second time that we would be moving. The first time was in 19... Uh, the early 70s, and I was uh, four 
four years old at that time. Yeah. And we just went for a year. And my dad, rather than going on a year business trip, took the whole family with them. Then it was in 1976, the second time Caterpillar said to him that they were moving him over permanently. Now he had a choice. Uh, I remember he chose, they, they were, what are the choices were? Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, 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 Japan, I think it was uh, Osaka, Japan, and then Joliet, Illinois. Yes. My mother refused. She said, you're not going to Brazil because every male that goes to Brazil comes back with a Brazilian wife and the other wives are divorced and left. Anyone that they knew in the company that had happened to. Right, yeah. Uh, and then, um, and my brother said, I also don't like their football team. We're not going no, to, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, uh, uh, the second one, Japan would have been the hardest culturally Certainly. to change to. Mm. And my mom and dad felt that wasn't fair to us, the children. So they chose Joliet, Illinois. Yeah. Greece must have come out when you were starting or nearly starting in high school, just coming up to that time. And it was the original high school musical, really. Uh, but later you yourself were part of a studio cast recording of that score. This wasn't the 1993 London cast. This was another one. No, this was a, a cast album that was put out by another company that just uh, made the albums. But the Grease not only being out, it was actually out when I was about 11. So it was just slightly before high school. In the days when you could take your children to the movie theater and leave them there yes. to watch a movie, yeah. I went in the morning and I watched it uh, throughout the whole day. I stayed in the back of the theater and I watched it about maybe five or six times. And then I went back the next day with a book that I bought that had all the lyrics in it. And I sat in the back and I met Olivia Newton-John many years later when I was doing Sunset Boulevard and I told her that she was a huge influence in my uh, becoming, you know, the musical man that I am today because I sat and watched her probably about 14, 13, 14 times over the course of two days in this movie Greece, and that was one of my first introductions to musicals. But this studio casting that was brought together by John Yap, that was one of his. That is correct. That was one of the John Yap productions uh, that I did many years ago with Shona Lindsay, myself, and uh, quite a few other people who were in it. And I, you know, one of those recordings that's out there. If you've got it, you're lucky. In high school, you seem to have gone on to a whole bunch of classic musicals, which read like an ideal training for the craft. You did anything from Oliver to Camelot and uh, Hello Dolly to Little Abner, which is an underrated piece. Which correct? I like. Yeah. This was good stuff to be getting to know. It, it was, and it was, um, you know, who knew that uh, a public high school in um, uh, Joliet, Illinois, would have such a vast music program, which ironically now doesn't exist because uh -huh. most of the funding for any arts programs in American public schools have been given to sports departments. And uh, I, you know, I do believe that there's a, a balance that you should you should have good sports departments and good music departments, but. That was a, a core training for me for, you know, gosh, for the future. Even when I went to, to school, university later on, there's nothing better than the classics. There's yeah. nothing better. You know, I, I tr attribute a lot of things. The, the musical teachers, I go back to a guy named was Dave Dankwart, was my first high school musical choir teacher. And I remember a story when I went into audition for Hello, Dolly!, I, I went into, I was just moved to the area, Caterpillar moved my dad from Aurora to Joliet, and I um, went to this musical audition. I was in the band, I played the flute in the band, so I read music, yeah. I knew how to, I, I played other musical instruments. 
I thought, I'm going to give it a whirl. I'm going to try for this musical, see what it is, and go audition. I went into the rehearsal room, kind of like a room we're sitting in now, a small little room. He was at the other side of the room, and he played, and I sang for him. And then he played something else, and he said, can you sing it back to me? And I sang back, and he said, do you think you're good? And I said, I think I'm all right. And he said, do you think you can do this? And I said, of course I think I can do it. I wouldn't be here if I did. And he said to me, are you arrogant? And I didn't know what the word meant. Honestly, right. I had no clue. And I went, yeah. And he, and, he, and he just smiled. And he looked at me and afterwards, and he said, and I later, I got the, one of the lead roles as a freshman in the high school production, yeah. which was very unheard of because they only usually gave it to the seniors of because course. they had been there for four years. Sure. And here was this young freshman came in, got one of the lead roles, and it was a little difficult, but really it prepared me for the job that I'm doing today, all the kind of competition that goes on. And you know, there's there's a lot of good things that happen in the industry, but there's a lot of also, you know, kind of things behind closed doors that people say, and you kind of have to deal with that too. So it prepared me for all of that. But mm. I, he said to me afterwards, um, like a year or two later, he said, "You, I asked you about that, about being arrogant. What? And he said, you didn't know what I was talking about. I said, <laughs> no, I didn't, but I was too embarrassed yes. to say. So I just said, yes, I figured I had a 50-50 chance. Yeah. Of being right or wrong. Yeah. So, and he said, I, he said, I knew it, and I liked that you took that risk. Uh, there you are. You studied performing arts, I mean, uh, college-wise, in a couple of places. One of them was San Diego, Life, Life on the Ocean Wave, ho-ho. Mm. But it's not too long after that that you suddenly turn up in the West End Theatre as Billy Crocker in, in, in Anything Goes, Cole yes. Porter's Anything Goes, which I saw. And... Uh, it doesn't sound as if there was much laborious apprenticeship or not a lot of spear carrying to be done in between these two things. No, there wasn't. And I, I, I consider myself to be very lucky. And I had great teachers around me at that time. I went to university in San Diego and I was being trained to do musical theater. And again, with the people that were there working, uh, Andy Barnacle, Jack Tigett, they were... Jack Tiggett was immersed in the Hollywood 1940s uh, big MGM musicals. He had that training behind him. Andy Barnacle was my acting teacher. But when I came to the UK, I had six... I, I'd come over here to study Shakespeare, six months uh, to finish my bachelor's degree in musical theater in the US, and I was going to hit the pavement like everybody else was and tread the boards and try to get into the business. My uncle, Neil, saw an ad for on television in Glasgow one night for... They were looking for a guy to replace uh, the lead opposite Elaine Page and Anything Goes, and the West End had already been running for three months. And I thought, I'll go give it a try. I'll give it a whirl, see if I can do it. And uh, I'm being trained to do it. I may as well. I went down. I'm cut, making a long story short here. Within 48 hours, I was down in the West End singing for Elaine. And I remember when they brought her up on stage... She walked up on stage and she said to me, she went, oh dear, my legs are awful sore. And I went, don't worry, darling, I'll hold on to you and I'll move you around the stage. Well, she looked at me and she told me later, she said, no one had ever spoken to me like that before. And she said, I took a shine to you right away because of you had this air of confidence. And she said, I felt like you, you know, and I'm, I'm elaborating on what she said, but she said, I kind of felt that you were going to take care of me in that way. And mm -hmm. she then took care of me and vice versa. And this lovely kind of bond was created between us for that whole performance. Bernard Cribbins, who well, took me under his wing. The great Cribbins. The I great mean, Cribbins. Who I think is just at his great age beginning to get his rightful due from the public. Here, Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, Bernard also, jumping around here, he was a great character in Doctor Who. Uh, yes. You know, he played Donna Noble's father. And I'm, I'm thrilled every time I talk about Bernie because 
Uh, Bernie, and, and I, if I can jump back here, Larry Oakes was also the in-house director of Anything Goes at that time. And Larry uh, allowed me to stay at his home. Um, and Larry's no longer with us. But Larry was the one who used to come to my dressing room like every night after the show. And he would give me notes. Even though I was in the West End, he would give me notes every single night. And I would listen to him. And I learned from him. I took all, anything Elaine told me, I was like a sponge. Anything Bernie told me, I was like a sponge. And... Bernie, to this day, when I get a new job or a big job, yeah. Bernie calls me in the telephone, and he congratulates me. Oh, great. And he still uh, does that. And even when it's, you know, I'm back, and he hears that I'm back in town or for a, a gig or for Christmas or something, call me up, and he'll yeah. uh, always in touch. Lovely well, I last man. saw him, it wasn't, wasn't long ago, he just signed a contract for another series of Old Jack's Boat on the Tit. 35 parts. You know, <laughs> it's not bad for your mid-80s. Listen, really you is. know, and long may Bernie keep on going because he's the man who taught me how to eat um, cream donuts between <laughs> shows and fish and chips. <laughs> <laughs> now, your list of credits after that production, it just flowed on and on, didn't it? I mean, you were mm. part of most of the new musical shows, it seems, either original productions or replacing somebody Correct. or revivals. And If there was a thread running through that, it was surely Cameron McIntosh. Absolutely. Cam- Cameron McIntosh uh, played a massive part in the early beginnings of my career. And again, Cameron took a, a, a shying and, and, listen... It sounds weird me talking about it, but when you have someone in Cameron's position who recognizes there might be something with some certain people, myself, Ruthie Henschel, quite a few others, he did the same with. And I wasn't stupid. Yeah. I came from a, a business family. Cameron was training us also as time went on to eventually give us bigger roles and to do bigger things for him. Yeah. I wasn't stupid. I knew that. And if Cameron McIntosh, people said to me, why do you keep going from one Cam McIntosh, Cameron McIntosh show to another and staying in it for years? I said, because it's good. It's a good background. Yeah. It's a good backbone to have. And it gives you discipline. So yeah, Cameron was a massive, massive part of my, you know, beginnings of my career. And into the middle, and I still, uh, Cameron, you know, although as everybody in the industry, you have your differences every now and then, um, we, I still hold him up there in high accolades. But the, the one big shadow across those highly successful theatre years of the 90s was for so many of the, the HIV and AIDS situations. Yes. Still remembered with a shudder by people, I know, friends I know who survived and everything. You know? As do I, yes. Yeah, and uh, did that? It was, it was a, there was a, yes, it was a big thing for me in the, because there was one point in uh, my career in, and I was doing Phantom of the Opera, and I remember, and again, this is why someone like Cameron and uh, people in, in his organization were absolutely amazing, because I, it was the kind of beginnings or the, the, where everything was, in HIV, it was happening, and to be blunt, those of us who were involved in the industry, people were dropping like flies. Yes. And nobody really knew why. And when they did know why, all of us who were young and and active and, uh, you know, exploring things in our lives realized that we were somewhat at risk. And I uh, I got sick. And I decided I, I was doing Phantom and I rang up Cameron's office and I said, I don't know what's wrong with me. I said, but I'm very sick and I, I you know, I need to go find out what this is. Um, and I need to go home because if it's, if it's what I fear that it is, I want to be with my family because it's time to, uh, to bring all this out in the front. And if I'm going to be ill, I want to be looked after. Well, bless Cameron. He, he had one of his doctors check me out 
and in those days, you couldn't get a test result right away yeah. because it was kept very private still, and you had to go through different channels. So um, Cameron had one of his doctors take it, uh, the, some blood and do a test. I'd already was back in the States, and I was there a week, you know, prior to getting any information back. But, you know, uh, fortunately, everything was okay. But I went through a period of, of fear. Yes. And for my friends who were living with, and I still have friends now who are living with HIV, and um, as do a lot of us out there, uh, I, I understood that fear that they went through. And uh, it's why I became so heavily involved in campaigning and also uh, raising money yeah. for uh, HIV and AIDS. And Terrence Higgins Trust uh, I've been involved with and, uh, you know, other AIDS charities that uh, do great work for, uh, like right now I do some things for Desert AIDS Project in Palm Springs, California, which is a massive HIV support system out there. Um, so, yeah, it's it was a period... You know, and you look back and you think maybe I was foolish for the things that I did, but at certain points we just didn't know. Mm. And it was a huge thing. I mean, if for for those who are listening and don't, you know, they might think they weren't there during that period. It was something like, you know, there was like 10 casts of cats. Yeah, I'm making an, but it was that kind of mass number of people. One company, 10, 10 casts of that one show, gone. Yes gone people just and you know i i remember names of people off the top of my head that i was in matador with i was in um, miss saigon with that are no longer with us you know they're they just and it's very sad it's very mm -hmm. sad but i'm glad now things have changed yes Barry Manilow's I Made It Through the Rain is a survivor's song. Yep. What part has it played in your life? Well, Barry's a, a friend. I know Barry quite well. I'm living in Palm Springs. Uh, I, I did uh, the song I Made It Through the Rain. I sang it on one of my albums, and it went to, in the charts here in the U.K., and it was um, uh, a song that I didn't expect to go into the charts. And Chris Moyles, who was a Radio 1 DJ, kept playing it every day, and it, it was a huge success for me, which led me to Barry, I sang with him in Hyde Park at one of his massive concerts for 40,000 people. He's a great singer, part of my childhood, and I'm now proud to say uh, he's a friend. Most people don't know that Barry was, uh, he wrote a lot of the uh, theme songs for commercials yes. in the States mm -hmm. and worldwide. Right. <laughs> now, the role of Captain Jack Harkness in the series Torchwood has been the big one among the ones mentioned. For alien listeners from distant parts of galactic history, <laughs> we should say that it was a spin-off from Doctor Who, of which Torchwood is an anagram. A lot of people still don't realise. I know. And it arose when Captain Jack took a vacation from Doctor Who so that David Tennant could sort of settle in as the Doctor, right? Yes, yeah. that's correct. So Torchwood was a new series created with you at the centre. Yep. And placed after the 9pm watershed, but that particular stipulation wobbled a bit, didn't it? It became, it was back and forth between children and adult content a little bit. A little bit. It was what they did. with the, We were after 9 o'clock, but they then saw that Jack was so popular with a younger audience, yeah. they re-edited the 9 o'clock version and took all the adults, the kind of adult references out right. and replayed it again at an earlier time. So we were kind of fortunate in the way that we were being opened up to two entirely different audiences. And in the States now, uh, Captain Jack is massive, uh, yeah. as is Doctor Who. And Torchwood, um, there's a huge following for, for him in, in America. That's, it's, again, 
a younger audience that are starting to watch it. But um, there's still that, you know, I, I always tell parents when they watch it, I say, just skip episode two. <laughs> yes. Skip episode two. Because everything else for me, you know, I'm not one to hide a lot of stuff. It, but it's everything else in that is normal, except for maybe some of the swearing, which we took out a lot of. Yeah. Uh, but episode two is probably the heaviest of things. It's, you know. It, it's done wonders for Cardiff. Hasn't it? it? But I, th- I think you think Cardiff deserves the wonders because you have a home there and you've said things about Cardiff which suggests it's not just a convenience but a pleasure to mm. live there. When I am in the UK and, uh, you know, our, we have a home in London but we we've, have rented that now, uh, our base is Cardiff. Our base is a little village outside of Cardiff actually called Sully and I wake up every morning and even when I lived in Cardiff Bay, I'd wake up and look at, out at the sea. It is one of the most underrated uh, uh, places in the United Kingdom. Um, it is a glorious place to go for uh, a night out, yeah. for dinner. You have the opera. You can get theater. You have some amazing things in Cardiff to do. And uh, Scott and I, when we're in uh, Wales, when we arrived the other day to, to have a little bit of a break and we, we went to bed, we arrived in the dark and we woke up the next morning and went out to our back garden and looked right over to the, 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 which goes right down to the beach and onto the sea. And we just looked and we just turned to smile and smiled at each other and went, we're home. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Lovely. Well, it's certainly refreshing to have none of the old Welsh cliches hanging about the series. I mean, ancestral coal miners and male voice choirs, <laughs> there are none, which is wonderful. Yes. But there are some Welsh traditions that are unavoidable, and one is Sir Tom Jones. Yes. And on your short list of songs here, we have Help Yourself by the same Tom yes, Jones. Yes, you do, you do. Now, why is that dear to you? Well, it's dear to me because, I, again, I'm going backwards, and I'm time-travelling a little bit. Uh, when I was growing up, my you'll remember eight-track cassette players. Yes. Okay. Eight-track stereo. Yep. Yeah. And when we tra- we used to in the states, uh, we had uh, an American station wagon, and we had eight-track cassettes. And my dad bought all the Tom Jones albums, and I had I, I not had to, but I listened with him to Tom Jones, and I absolutely love Tom Jones' voice because. Uh, Tom Jones, along with Shirley Bassey, and uh, I'm I'm cornering uh, older singers here, but there's a certain there's there's not any digitizing of the voice going on. Mm-hmm. There's not any tweaking of the pitches. If there's something goes wrong in their voice in the recording, you hear it, and they make it part like Dusty Springfield. They make it part of that performance. They're people who sing with passion from the soul and the heart, and if I can be blunt, their gut. Tom Jones, of course, puts us in mind of The Voice and all the other shows where talent is judged more or less severely by people who've made it in showbiz themselves. You've done a couple of those. I have. Lloyd Lloyd Webber ones. And I think the objection to them was mainly that Lord Lloyd Webber's casting problems should have been solved by him and not with the help of the BBC, who were also giving him publicity at the same time. There was a lot of that kind of there noise certainly made. certainly was, yes. yes. But you felt all right about those shows. I felt absolutely all right about them. I was uh, thrilled by them. We actually won some international Emmys for our first one, uh, which was uh, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? Now, a lot of people might have disagreed with what was going on, and I know there were people in the business who did disagree, but you know what? Again, look at it from a business point of view. Those shows actually put bums on seats. Yeah. They employed many, many people throughout the industry and also introduced a lot of new talent into the industry. And if there was a way of, you know, Andrew, uh, uh, Cameron, um, David Ian, uh, all of, you know, three of the big producers of major shows in the West End were all involved at some time. 
And if that was the way we were going to get bums on seats in the West End because it was flagging a little bit, then that's what we have to do. And I was there as a representative, not only having done all those shows, but I knew what they wanted and what they expected. And also, to be blunt, I wasn't going to let them manipulate me. No. I was going to stand up to them and say, I don't think you're right, Andrew. I think you're wrong, Cameron. And they may not have liked that, but I was there for that reason because, and also for the, the talent, you better buck up a little bit because this is tough. This is yeah. not a, a hobby. This is a, a gay, it's a job, it's a lifetime, and you need to commit to it if you're going to do it. And if you're not, there's 150 other young men, other young women who would love to be in your position. So take it seriously. Mm-hmm. So I love doing it. Yeah. Fair enough. By the way, I, we should never have left Cardiff because uh, you, you're, um, the civil partnership with Scott, that yes, took place in Cardiff. It certainly but did. then you married in California mm-hmm. as a kind of celebration, I think, of the fact that California had just decided that it couldn't go back on the idea of having same-sex marriages. Correct. Well, they, they, the Supreme Court overturned the decision in, uh, for California and the state, I think it was a state uh, Supreme Court overturned the, the position. Yeah. And now all the, in the states, all of the, we call it the dominoes are falling. Um, I had my civil partnership in Cardiff uh, and because we love Cardiff, we love it. And it was a wonderful uh, civil partnership. We had all the family there. But when that law was uh, uh, changed again in the state of California, we woke up one morning and we you know, we're in our house in Palm Springs. We were still in bed. We turned the news on. My sister called me. I think Gavin, my my manager, called me. Um, it was late here. Everybody started tweeting about it, and I just turned to Scott and I said, "We have to get married. We just have to do it because we have to prove and show people that when we can, we want to, and we we're going to do it. Yeah. And it's the right thing to do because nobody should ever be denied the right to love somebody that they love, no matter who they are. And if your belief is something different, then just get with the 21st and the 22nd century or whatever. Time's going to move on, and yeah. it's, and and people, the younger generation, are going to change all that. Yeah. John, if you think of music theatre as a, as a mountain range, there are different peaks, and some are nice and smooth and some are pretty jagged, and mm-hmm. some get trickier the closer you get to the top. And I imagine one of the more demanding ascents is Stephen Sondheim, which you did do. I've yeah, and, quite uh, a few of them, he, yes. You worked on Company and a yep. couple of other things. Yep. Working with him, they say, is quite unlike doing a show with anybody else. Is that your experience? It is, because when you go into a Sondheim show, you're all of a sudden part of a group of people who are... This is some. This may come across as being a little bit of. I don't, I don't want it to sound that way because it's in the industry. Once you're done, you're doing Sondheim or have done Sondheim, you're in a little different group of people. If I can say that, yes. okay. Stephen, when you go into the rehearsals, and I've done company and putting it together, and uh, I've done some uh, things at the Lincoln Center for Stephen. When you go into the rehearsals, you think, oh, my gosh, it's Stephen Sondheim. You have to, you know, he's going to be so technical and it's going to be so blah, 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 blah. And the ironic thing is he sits back, folds his arms and says, just sing it. Yeah. And you're, you kind of go, hold on a second. You are like the god of musical theater and everybody wants to do this. And you're, you're handing it over to say, take it. He said, yeah, well, you do it. And if there's a mistake or something goes wrong, I'll help you out. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly it. I did company for him, and I was um, company was a huge moment in my life. Uh, I still like to have a good time with what I do, but it was a it was a part moment in my life where actually the character of Bobby taught me a lot about life, and 
about becoming a man, but also letting the kids still live inside. And that's how I approached Bobby. Stephen and by this time, Frank Rich, who was the big critic of the of in New York, had retired, but he came to see our performance at the the uh, Kennedy Center, and they were doing all of Stephen's shows in rep. And like I said, I was doing company, and Bob Avian was doing the choreography, and uh, um, uh, Cameron was involved. It was it was a great great time, um, and I uh, came. I finished singing "Being Alive" one night, came off the stage. And Stephen came up to me in the hallway and he said, I have never heard, not in these exact words, he said, I've never heard it sung that way before. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done wrong? Mm. And he said, no. He said, I'm moved to tears. And he said, no one has ever made me cry singing that. He said, because you were a man struggling with this child inside, r- trying to become a man. And he said, he went through this all this different stuff with me. And I, I was, I stood there listening to him. And then after it, I said, can you write it down, please, Stephen? Because I want to use that someday. That's like the dream mm. that any performer who's performed for in musicals wants Stephen Sondheim to say those things to them. And then Frank Rich wrote an article where he praised me in it. And I thought, oh my gosh, why why couldn't this happen when he was still writing for the you know yeah, for the New York the New York, York Times. Times? Yeah, right. Um so I, I've quoted some of that stuff in my book, but that doing company for me was a a massive, massive moment in my career, in my life, and and I loved working for Stephen. And the ironic thing, Stephen Sondheim's uh, lyrics and music are the most difficult to learn, but once you learn them, it's like speaking. Yes, it just rolls off your tongue. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know how to. to I just know how to do it. I know that you have to master it, learn it, and know it inside out. But once you then start performing it, it is second nature. It's Isn't unbelievable. That, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's let's come further up to date. Well, almost up to date. Um, you did some American TV series that didn't work. I mean, earlier on, much yep. earlier on. Yep. Which is, must have been an interesting experience being, you know, oh, it was great. terminated, taken off the network and yeah. all that stuff after a certain number. But latterly, there's been one that really has succeeded, Arrow. Yes. Uh, based on the Green Arrow comics. Yep. And you're a wholehearted villain in that, which is must be fun. It's totally amazing. I mean, it's to be a bad guy, and I sit here with uh, jet black hair because my hair is dyed because in America you have to have dark, dark hair to be a bad guy. Oh, of course. And uh, I, when they spoke to me about being an Arrow, uh, they actually approached me and said, "We are, um, we're not sure you'll you'll want to do this, but would you be interested?" I said, guys, guys, explain it to me. And these were the producers. And they said, you know, you, uh, explained the character, explained what it would be. Malcolm Merlin is the character's name. They said he will always be part of the Arrow world. I said, fine, sounds great. By the end of the conversation, they said to me, um, what do you think? I said, well, I'm going to tell you something here. You guys describing this to me was like the conversation I had with Russell T. Davies and uh, Phil Collinson for my Captain Jack role. If you're going to do it with that kind of passion, I want to be involved. And yeah. we're three years in now. Yeah. And... Um, I'm full-time on the show rather than a part-timer, and it's playing in many, many countries around the world. And what's really, really lovely, Russell, is I'm being recognized still for Captain Jack and for other things that I've done, but people are coming up to me in places that are unbelievably wild and bizarre and saying, Malcolm Merlin, I don't like you, but I like you. Well, that's good. Which is great. Yeah, yeah. And best of all, perhaps, you apparently died in the series, but then you reappeared. Which is there, you you know, so that's just another, yeah. Yeah. There's ways, 
in comic book world and the science science fiction world, you can do many, many different things. And uh, he didn't really die, Malcolm Merlin. What he he had trained as a uh, he trained on. Oh, I could get really into the story here, and it would just bore you. But he trained on a, a somewhere. I don't want to give some of the plot away, but no, it, no. which he has training, which he was able to mimic death. Yeah, and then disappear and then come back. So. Yes. Uh-huh. Welcome to the world of DC Comics. Well, wonderful. And I see your concert tour for 2015 yes. has been advertised slightly more than a year before it happens, which speaks for itself in terms of the eagerness of your audience. But you're okay, are you, with knowing that you're going to be in Ipswich on the 26th of May next I'm year? I'm thrilled to know that I'm going to be all over the United Kingdom doing shows, and we were, in fact, talking about it today. I now start, have, I have to structure it. I write it. My uh, business partner, Gavin, and I, Barrowman Barker Productions, we, help, we produce it together. Uh, so we are, um, we are on the road, yes. It's a, it's a long way ahead, but the reason we've done that is because of time and also it's selling which yeah. is really amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, get ready, because if you come to see it, uh, I always do guarantee a great night of entertainment. And you're also going to be playing Buttons in Glasgow. <laughs> you and your sister Carol have completed, I think, your third work of uh, fantasy fiction. Correct. We... You were made MBE in the last birthday honours. And yes. does success... Congratulations Thank on that, you. by the way. Does success create its own energy, or do you sometimes admit to getting tired? I, 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 I do get tired. I do not always have success. And I am just one of those people. I don't dwell on it. Uh, if I am tired and need a break, my my team know. I say, leave me alone for a few days, and they do. And I recoup and I regroup things. Um, I I have had failure, but I use that failure to learn. And in a sense, you know, maybe the, the my my fans don't want to hear about that because they feed off the energy that I give them, which I think is wonderful because they've all said I put a positive light in their life, which I'm thrilled that I can do that. So think bad things do happen in my life, but I tend to deal with that on a personal level. And if it's something to do with my career, then so be it. It wasn't meant to happen. Something else will come along. And that's the optimistic outlook that I always have and the positive outlook that I always have in life. John Barrowman, I'll see you in another decade, all being well. Yes. But don't tell Russell T. Davis I plan to survive. No. Because he'll lose it completely. And I'll make sure you're all right. Don't you worry. <laughs> Meantime. Thank you. Thank you very much for this visit. It's been great. You're very welcome. And of all the visitors to this studio so far, I don't think anyone has seemed to live in a more perpetual sunshine than John Barrowman. Nobody I've ever met, anyway, lives out more completely the expression a gay man in both its old traditional happy sense and its more modern meaning. To think what he might be doing and saying in another ten years is a fascinating speculation. I hope to be around to see its fulfilment. My thanks to him for that infusion of energy and also to my producer, Sarah Cropper. This has been a Wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 2, online, on digital radio and on 88 to 91 FM.